thank you so much uh, to our student team. What a great job leading us in worship. So thankful that they're putting their talents and abilities the Lord has given them to work to, uh, to honor him. I'm so thankful for them. Well, we're in our third week in uh, the book of Romans. Romans is a comprehensive theological treatment of the gospel. Um, we're doing kind of an abbreviated theological treatment as we try to cover, as you're reading through five chapters each week, and we try to just enhance what you're reading and cover that. Last week, uh, we covered the doctrine of justification. Uh, we're all guilty. Uh, all of us, there is no exception. We've all broken God's law. We've all rebelled. We're under the wrath of God, and we all deserve the penalty of death. And because we're spiritually bankrupt, we can't repay our debt. We don't have in us any way to satisfy the, the penalty uh, of the death that we deserve. I love what, what Paul says in Romans 5. This is actually one of my favorite sections of the book of Romans. When he says in Romans 5, 6, explaining that we could not pay our debt and what God did for us, he says, while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, isn't that a great word? We, we had no ability, but while we were still sinners, not when we decided to begin to obey God, while we, not when we decided to turn back and stop rebelling, while we were still sinners, while we were separated from God, while we were rebellious enemies toward God, he sent Christ to die for us. You know, that Romans 5, 8, while we were sinners, Christ died for us, is one verse in four in the book of Romans that you can use to explain the gospel. We talked last month about the importance of getting the faith, getting the word out, getting the gospel message out. There are four verses in Romans you could use that would explain the entire gospel message, and many of them you already know. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Romans 5.8, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And then Romans 10.9 and 10, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. So that's a very simple uh, explanation of the gospel. If you would learn those verses, Romans 3.23, Romans 6.23, Romans 5.8, and Romans 10, 9, and 10. If you would learn those four verses, commit them to memory, you'll always be able to be prepared to share the gospel. Well, the work of justification is what Christ did on the cross. And you remember we said that those who accepted Christ have his righteousness imputed to them. Our righteousness, however we live, however good and moral we are, is never enough, will never be enough, but we need the righteousness of Christ. And you remember imputed meant attributed. Our sin was attributed to Christ. All the sin of all mankind was attributed to Christ who was sinless. And then for those who accept what he's done for us on the cross, his righteousness is attributed to us. What that means is when God looks at us, he sees the perfect righteousness of Christ, not our own feeble attempts at self-righteousness, which would never work. But he literally, when he looks at us, he sees us as righteous because we're in the perfect righteousness of Christ. That's the doctrine of justification that we looked at last week. We're pronounced righteous, and we're treated as righteous. God treats us as if we're perfectly righteous because we've accepted what Christ has done and not our own works. At the moment of salvation, uh, when, when you and I recognize our sin and our separation from God, when we acknowledge our inability 
uh, to be in right standing with God, and when we accept Christ's death for our sin and declare him to be our personal Lord and Savior, at that moment, we're justified. It's totally by the grace of God, totally by the grace of God that we're forgiven and we're justified. Well, Paul asks the question after explaining justification and that it's by grace. Paul asks the question then in chapter 6 and verse 1, well, should we keep on sinning so that the grace continues to flow? If we're justified by grace in spite of our sin, should we keep on sinning? Or, or, or you might think of it this way. He asks, does it matter if we keep on sinning since we're forgiven? I mean, if we're forgiven, past, present, future, why, why does it matter if we keep on sinning? You know, when we truly understand what God has done to justify us, when we understand the price that was paid to redeem us and make us righteous, then that grace is not something we want to abuse. That grace is actually what should motivate us to good works and to spiritual growth in our own lives, to becoming more and more like Christ. When we're freed from the cruel master of sin, we should willingly want to serve the gracious master who has freed us. And you know, you're going to serve one of two masters. All of us. None of us can think, well, I don't want to make Christ Lord of life because I don't want him to be the boss of my life. I want to be my own God, my own Lord, my own master. You're not going to be your own master. Everyone, every man, woman, boy, and girl is going to serve one of two masters. Either you're going to serve God unto righteousness or you're going to serve sin and Satan, which leads unto destruction and death. Listen to what Paul said in, in Romans 6, 16. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves... You are slaves of the one whom you obey, either sin, which leads to death, or obedience, which leads to righteousness. So what does he say in, in that 16th verse? You're going to serve one of two masters, either sin, which leads to death, or obedience, which leads to righteousness. In the 17th verse, thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. He said you're no longer, when you come to Christ, you're no longer a slave to sin, but you're obedient to what you've been taught. What is that? The message of the gospel. Verse 18, and having been set free from sin, you become slaves of righteousness. You're going to serve one or the other, either a slave to sin or a slave to righteousness. And then in chapter 6 and verse 22, he says, but now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end is eternal life. You see, no one who has truly come to God by faith and accepted and received his grace and has been justified, they can't go on and willfully live in sin and rebellion when they understand what Christ has done for them. And that brings us to the doctrine of sanctification. What happens after you're justified? What, what happens after that moment, that, that, that turning point in your life when you receive Christ as Lord and Savior? What happens at that point and from there forward. Well, you've read this week, if you're reading through the New Testament with us, you've read uh, Romans 6, 7, and 8 on Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday this week, or, or this weekend if you got caught up. And, and we come to the doctrine of sanctification. What happens with justification happens instantly. It's a result of the work that Christ has done for us. At the moment we receive Christ, we're justified. Sanctification is a part of the salvation experience, but it's an ongoing process. It's, it's where we become more Christ-like. The definition of sanctify is to set something apart for a special purpose. Well, God 
in redeeming us through the work that Christ did, in justifying us, God has set us apart to holiness. You remember last week we talked about the law, why it was given. It was given to reflect the character of God, and it was given to his people so that they would, in keeping the law, reflect his character. And what is his character? Well, it's holiness. So sanctification is us becoming in practice what we already are in position. Our position is that we are in the righteousness of Christ. That's how God sees us. We're justified. We're reconciled. We're made right with God. But we have to, in practice, become more and more like Christ. So when, when a person believes in Christ, when they place their faith in Christ, they're freed immediately from the penalty of sin. They're also freed from the power of sin. That's sanctification. The, the sin no longer has power over us, and we have the ability. We're not enslaved to sin because of the power in our new spiritual life. We have the ability to live a life that no longer yields to sin. Now, here's a caveat that's really important for us to get this morning. Where justification is completely dependent on what God has done for us. He did it by grace, through faith, not of works. We can't boast. Justification is completely dependent on what Christ did for us, what God did for us. Sanctification requires our cooperation. We, we have a part to play. It requires our cooperation with the Spirit of God. We have to trust Him to work in us. We, we can't do it on our own, but... We have to respond and work with him toward our sanctification. Let me tell you two important truths you really have to remember as we talk about sanctification and that work that happens in us. The first truth is this. In this life, uh, you and I will never be able to say, I'm completely free from sin. It's just not going to happen. Sanctification is not complete until the death of the believer. See, the third part of the salvation process, you have justification, which happens at the moment you receive Christ. You have sanctification, which goes on through your entire life. The third part is your glorification. When, when you die and you are with Christ, you are glorified. But you're not going to be perfect. You're not going to complete the sanctification process in this life. So there's not ever going to be a time where you can say, I'm completely free of sin. You're still going to struggle. But on the other hand, the second important thing to remember about sanctification is this. As believers who've been justified with Christ, who are indwelled by the Holy Spirit, we also are never able to say, I just can't overcome this sin, it has defeated me. We don't live, Paul makes clear here in the sixth chapter, that we don't live as those who are defeated in sin. Christ has defeated sin. When we died with him, sin in our lives was defeated. Listen, sanctification is a process. It's also a battle. We still have, in, in this body, we still have fleshly sinful desires. Sanctification is not immediate, and it's also not automatic. Well, let me look at the key point of our text this morning. And, and Romans 6 through 8, I hope even if you've already read it, you'll go back and reread it. It has so much to say, more than we can cover in these moments so much to say about sanctification, but let me, let me read the key text to you in Romans chapter 6, verses 11 through 14. Listen to the words of Paul. So, you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. 
Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Verse 14, for sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. So we see here in these verses our role in the sanctification process. We have to obey God, and, and that's going to increase our sanctification. But let me show you from these verses some very specific actions we need to take in the process of sanctification. The first thing you see there in verse 11 is that, that we need to recount to ourselves, we need to remember what God has done. Paul says, consider yourself dead to sin, alive to God in Christ Jesus. The word consider uh, literally means to, to reckon. Okay, what does it mean to reckon? Well, you remember we said that the righteousness of Christ has been imputed to you. It's been attributed to you. Where you were bankrupt, he cleaned out the bankruptcy and then put all of his resources, all of his riches in your account. So to reckon would mean you're going you're gonna to realize that God has made a deposit to your account in your behalf, and you're going to look at your account, you're going to calculate, you're going to affirm what is true. You're going to look at the balance sheet and affirm what God has said about you. You're going to affirm, even in times when you don't, you, you're, you don't feel like it, you're not sure you believe it, you're going to affirm that you're in Christ, and if any man is in Christ, he's a new creation, the old has gone, the new has come. You're going to affirm, uh, Galatians 2.20, you're going to affirm what Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. This life which I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. You're going to affirm those things as you look at your account and the deposit uh, God has made, Christ has made, you're going to reckon that. You're going to look at it and say, well, th this is what's true. This is what's here. This is, this is the balance that's in my account. You see, we don't have to give in to sin. We have the ability to yield ourselves to God. God has brought us life, and we owe him our lives. It's what Paul said as you get into Romans 12 this next week. It's what, what Paul said in Romans 12. I urge you, brothers, because of all that God has done, all that we've talked about up to this point, I urge you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies, what? A living sacrifice. Holy and acceptable God is your spiritual service of worship. We're able to yield to him. We're able to present our bodies a living sacrifice. You know, I thought this week during the time of study about Jesus raising Lazarus from the grave. You know, he called Lazarus, Lazarus come forth, and then when Lazarus appeared at the mouth of the grave, he was what? He was bound in grave clothes, in the clothes of death. And so he had to tell those who were gathered there to release him. Well, you know, Jesus, God has done a miraculous thing through Jesus in us in that he's brought us to life. We need to stop acting like we're dead. We need to stop walking around in grave clothes. We're not captive to sin any longer. We don't have to give in. We, we need to wrap our mind and our heart and our spirit around that truth. We're not dead. We're alive in Christ. You know, if you don't really wrap your heart and mind around that truth, then every time you sin, and you will still sin as a believer, every time you sin, Satan is going to be quick to point out your grave clothes, to point out that, and try to convince you that you're still dead, and take away your confidence in what Christ has done in breaking the power of sin. You're not bound to sin. That power is broken in your life. You, 
You, you can't listen to Satan when, when you fall, when you give into temptation and, and you sin, rather than being convicted by the Spirit and confessing and repenting of that sin, Satan's going to be condemning you to keep you from doing what God calls you to do with your sin, which is to bring it to him. Satan's going to be condemning you and, and getting you to say, well, I, I, I can't help it. I, I, I really, I, I, can't, I can't stop sinning. I, I can't stop this. No, you have the power. Several years ago in Discipleship Magazine, I read a, uh, an article about how circus elephants are uh, held and, and how they're tied to a certain spot. And if you go to a circus and you go out back where the elephants are staked out, you'll notice elephants are typically held in place by a small wooden stake and a rope. And if you get thinking about it, that elephant has enough power to just snatch that stake right out of the ground and go where he wants to go, but he won't do it. And the reason is when an elephant's very young, They'll take a long steel spike and drive it deep into the ground and chain that elephant with a heavy chain. And as a young elephant, that elephant will pull and pull and pull, and finally a day will come when the elephant gives up trying to pull that steel spike out of the ground and trying to break free from that chain. And from that moment on, when that elephant gives up, they are able to just use a small wooden stake and a rope, and that elephant will not ever again try to pull that stake out of the ground. He's given up. You know, that's a perfect picture of what happens to us sometimes with our sin. If we listen to the evil one and he convinces us we will never break free, then we'll give up and we'll stop. And we're bound and held captive by sin. But Paul says that's not the case for the believer who understands what Christ has done. The second thing you see in these verses in 11 through 14 is Paul very cl clearly says, don't let sin reign and make you obey its passions. What he's doing is personifying sin as a, as a king or a ruler, someone who makes you obey. Paul's saying, listen, sin, don't let sin reign. You, you need to remember the king has been dethroned. So all you have to do is decide, are you going to serve your new king? If you look ahead to Romans chapter 8 and verse 13, Paul says, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Okay, now, two things there. First of all, don't put sin back on the throne, but, but notice the responsibilities on you and on me. He says, if you put to death the deeds of the flesh, you will live. You have to make a choice. You have to decide, I'm not going to let sin control me any longer. The, the Spirit of God who lives, you in as, as a believer, lives in you as a believer gives you the power, but you have to make the choice to put sinful actions to death. And listen, it's hard work. It's not easy. It's hard work. It's like anything else you do in life that, that, that's really worth doing or, or worth being or worth having, it requires effort. It's hard work to put sin to death, but, but success breeds success. As you learn to put sin to death, you'll become more successful. I don't want to say it'll be easier, because the more like Christ you become, the more Satan's going to try to attack you, but you will be much more skilled at putting sin to death once you begin that practice. Here's the third thing that Paul mentions in these verses, and very simply, I would say, he's calling us to think about the end result. He says, don't present your members as instruments of unrighteousness, and literally the word instruments could be translated weapons. Don't surrender to sin and give your body, give the instruments of your body, the weapons of your body to unrighteousness. 
don't let sin become a weapon that Satan can use toward unrighteousness. And the question we have to ask is, in, in the choices I make and the things I do and the actions that I take, am I becoming a tool or weapon in the hands of Satan to lead myself and others to unrighteousness, or am I giving my members as instruments of righteousness? Well, these chapters, again, 6 through 8, say a lot more about sanctification. I hope you'll go back and, and, and reread them. But I want to say to you this morning, if you haven't understood that, that you have a significant role in the sanctification process, and if, if you haven't been fulfilling your part, don't give up. Don't say, I can't. Don't say, I'll never be good enough. We all struggle. Even Paul. If you look ahead to chapter 7, Paul, and you've, you've heard this text before, Paul says, listen, the things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, I do. He talks about the struggle he has in being the man that God has called him to be. We've got to persevere. We've got to understand our role in the process of sanctification and becoming more and more like Christ. Well, let me close with this. I'm going to give you some just very, very simple, practical steps in how to achieve the sanctification God wants to happen in your own life. And step number one is very simple. You need to pray for it. You need to pray and ask God to help you in the process of sanctification. Jesus prayed that in John 17 for the disciples. You remember in that high priestly prayer in John 17, he wasn't just praying for the disciples then, he was praying for all those who would be his disciples. That includes you and me today. And he asked the Father, sanctify them. So we need to pray that God will sanctify us. The second thing is this. We need to recognize sin, and we need to call it what it is. We need to, to look in our lives, and we need to be hard on ourselves, especially in our confession to the Lord. As someone told me once, if your confession doesn't embarrass you, you're not likely to change. Here, here's what I mean by that. Let's say that um, I tell a lie to my wife. Well, when I confess that to the Lord, I can just say, Lord, um, forgive me for that little lie I told. Or I can say, Lord, I'm a liar. You know, that, that hurts a lot more to have to admit that that's part of my character, that I'm a liar. But I've got to recognize sin, and, and I've got to be honest about the sin and what it is. I think it's important when you think about the sin in your life to kind of analyze that sin and say, well, why is, why is this particular sin appealing to me? What is, the, what is the need that I'm trying to meet here? And as we recognize sin and we're honest about sin, we need to deal with sin radically. Remember the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus said, if, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. If your right hand, cut it off. Now, was he literally saying to do that? No, but he was saying we have to do whatever it takes. We have to treat sin like a terminal cancer and do whatever it takes to cut it out and to root it out and to get it out of our lives. A third step in, in moving toward the, in, in the process of sanctification is to focus on God's Word. If we'll really be focused on the Word of God and building the Word of God into our lives, that's going to change us. In Ephesians 5.25 and also in that in that prayer in John 17 that Jesus prayed, it says that we are sanctified by the Word. The more of the Word we pour into us, the more it flushes out of those things in our life that are not pleasing to God. You remember the psalmist in Psalm 119.11 said, Your Word I've hidden in my heart that I may not sin against you. As we read the Word, as we memorize the Word and meditate on the Word and build it into our heart, into our lives, it helps us become sanctified. I heard an old Indian chief explain it this way one time. He said, he was a believer, and he said, 
in, in my soul, in my spirit, are two dogs, a black dog and a white dog. The black dog represents sin and evil. The white dog represents righteousness. And he said those two dogs are continually fighting. You know which dog wins? The one I feed the most. If we're spending time in the Word of God and building the truth of God into our lives, that's going to help us overcome sin and the temptations. Fourth thing I would say to us, just very practically, on becoming the people God has called us to be is we need to avoid tempting situations and people. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 33 said, bad company corrupts good morals. So we need to avoid people that, that tempt us, that, that try to encourage us to do sinful things. But we also need to avoid um, situations that are tempting. If I was an alcoholic, a, a recovering alcoholic, I would not go sit at a bar and see how long I could sit there without taking a drink. That, that would be foolish. Why would I put myself in a situation that I know is tempting? Paul in Romans 13, 14 said, don't think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. Let me paraphrase that. People don't fall into sin, they plan it. What did Paul say? He said, don't think about how to gratify the desire. What's he saying? You're going to fall. If you start thinking about something you want to do that you know is sinful, and if you put yourself in the in the position or the situation that you're going to be tempted, you're probably going to fall. So you need to think as a believer, hey, what do I need to do to avoid those things that I know are going to tempt me to sin? A fifth thing is just the idea of accountability. Proverbs 27, 17 is iron sharpens iron. You need to have someone that you're accountable to, probably someone other than your mate, uh, a male friend if you're a male, a female friend if you're a female, but someone you can be very vulnerable with. You can say, hey, let me tell you, the areas I'm most likely to be tempted in are these areas. I need you to ask me every week uh, how I've done in each of these areas. And you need to be honest in that accountability relationship. And then finally, um, I would just say it this way. Keep short accounts with God. When you sin as a believer, the Spirit of God who lives in you is going to convict you. At that moment, you have a choice to make. You can put him off. You can say, I'll deal with that later. You can just choose to go on in your sin and, and ignore him. But at that moment when the Spirit convicts you, the, the thing that you need to do to be who God has called you to be is you need to confess immediately and repent. Figure out, what am I going to do? What am I going to change? How am I going to turn around and, and stay away from the sin in my life? Listen, your salvation and my salvation is not a, it's not a one-and-done deal. Your salvation's not over the minute you make a decision to come to Christ. That's the beginning. The purpose of salvation is first to restore your relationship with God, but then secondly, it's to restore the image of God in your life which has been marred by sin. You're supposed to look more and more like Christ the longer you go on in the faith. This week, my daughter Sarah sent me a, a picture. She had just taken a picture of my, my oldest grandson, Wallace, and she said, Dad, I took this picture, and then I looked at it, and it kind of took me back for a minute because I thought I was looking at one of your childhood pictures. Well, you know, it's no surprise that my grandson looks a lot like me. It's in the genes, right? And, and in fact, my son, Jordan, looks even more like me. But it's no surprise when we lay pictures down from me as a boy and, and Jordan as a boy and Wallace as a boy, it's no surprise that we look a lot of like. But, you know, it should be no surprise that a believer looks a lot like Christ. Those who are born of God should grow 
to resemble their father. That's the process of sanctification. We've been saved, we've been justified, but now we're in the process of putting that into practice and looking more and more like Christ. Would you pray with me this morning? You know, as we think and reflect on the the message of sanctification from Romans this morning, really the, the question for application is pretty simple. Do I look more like Christ today than, than I did last month or, or last year. Do you think you look more like Christ today? What about the people around you closest to you, your, your family or, or close friends or, or maybe co-workers? Do they think you look more like Christ? Most importantly, What does God think? Remember, your salvation was not only to restore your relationship, your fellowship with the Father, it was also to restore the image of God. God made you in his image. His image in you was marred by sin. So as you have come to Christ, and then as you daily choose to be a part of that sanctification process, you begin to look more and more like Christ, the image of God in you. Father, thank you that when you saved us, you didn't just save us and leave us where we are, but you saved us and began to restore your image in us. You began to make us more and more like Christ. But God, help us recognize today that while the process of salvation, of being justified, we had no part in because we could not pay our debt. We were bankrupt. While that process was totally dependent on you, help us to recognize that the process of sanctification is dependent on us working with you. Father, help us to take seriously your call for us to be a holy people, for us to be sanctified, for us to be more and more like Christ. Help us to put into practice the steps that we need to take so that we might be sanctified as you've called us to be. For we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.